0: There was a grandmother who took her grandson to the beach, and while he was playing in the ocean, a riptide rolled in and swept him out to sea. The grandmother was horrified, and she immediately fell on her knees and began praying. Please, God, she cried. I've always been a good person, a devout Christian, a loving grandmother. Please return my grandson to me. Just as she finished praying, a huge wave crashed on the shore, returning her grandson to her. And the grandmother cried out with relief and hugged her grandson, overcome with joy and gratitude. And then she looked over her grandson and at the water, finally back up to the sky and yelled, hey, you're not finished. He was wearing a hat. Does God have a sense of humor? Well, it depends on who you ask. The Jewish people have always believed in God's sense of humor. They gave us the wonderful Yiddish phrase, man trakt un got la, humans make plans and God laughs, which should probably be written at the top of every strategic plan, <laughs> especially the churches. But belief in God's sense of humor is not universal. Greek philosophers were opposed to the idea of a God who laughs, or laughter itself. Plato and Aristotle believed that laughter, all laughter, was schadenfreude, pleasure derived at the misfortune of others. Most Western theologians followed suit, from Augustine to Bernard of Clairvaux to John Chrysostom. Even Reinhold Niebuhr declared and denounced laughter, maintaining that it is nihilistic and irresponsible. In the sixth century, Saint Benedict even banned laughter in all the monasteries, declaring, as for words that lead to laughter, we condemn them with a perpetual ban. Must have been fun to be a monk back in those days. My uncle, who was a minister for 40 years, likes to say that the definition of a Puritan is a person who is angry if anyone anywhere is having a good time. And then he would follow and say the church is filled with Puritans. Even scholars of laughter, like John Morial, have claimed that God cannot have a sense of humor because God knows everything in past, present, and future, so nothing could happen to surprise God. For this reason, God could not experience the psychological shift that leads to laughter. Well, John, I'm sorry to say, but I guess God and laughter are more mysterious than you think. Because in Scripture we find a God who not only laughs but does incredible things to make people laugh. God sent talking snakes and talking donkeys, burning bushes, plagues of frogs, and parted seas, circumcised men and salacious women, giants and unicorns, prophets getting naked and running scared, marrying prostitutes, and being swallowed by whales. And if that were not enough, God sent Jesus, who told hilarious parables, lampooned the powers that be, and turned the world upside down. Either God has a wild sense of humor, or the people who wrote the Bible do, or both. As our story from Genesis reveals today, the first covenant God made with Israel began with laughter. I imagine God laughed first, and then Abraham, but Sarah had the last laugh. Frederick Beekner captured this wild holy and hilarious splendor in his book telling the truth the gospel is tragedy comedy and fairy tale he wrote everything starts with a woman laughing she's an old woman and after a lifetime in the desert her face is cracked and rutted like a 6 month drought she hunches her shoulders around her eyes and starts to shake she squints her laughter is all a wheeze and tears running down as she rocks back and forth in her kitchen chair. She's laughing because she's pushing 91 and she's been told she's going to have a baby. The woman's name is Sarah, of course, and her old man's name is Abraham, and they're laughing at the idea of a baby being born in the geriatric ward, in Medicare, picking up the tab. Maybe the most interesting part is that Far from getting angry at them for laughing, God called them to name the child Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. So God not only tolerated their laughter, but blessed it and joined in laughing along with them. The the Bible tries to downplay some of the most humorous parts of this story, one of which is that Abraham and Sarah had the same father. Read between the lines. Even more intriguing is the name Sarah means priestess. Sarah's sister's name was Milka, which means the high moon priestess. And Sarah's name means associate moon minister. Now You didn't know there were associate ministers back in the Iron Age, did you, Joe, Mia? They had the same job description, all duties, other as assigned. Imagine working for your sister and marrying your brother. Babylon's city Ur was an important center of ancient Babylonian moon worship, and the moon priestess was a high rank for a woman in that society. However, the status was conditional upon remaining Naditu, intentionally childless. Naditu priestesses could attain motherhood only through a surrogate, which foreshadows the story of Hagar later and implies that harsh measures may have been taken by male priests to prevent their fertility. Sarah's childlessness could have very well been a leftover part of her original job. And so this associate moon priestess Sarah eloped with her half-brother Abraham, abandoning their father Terah's household and absconding to Haran, where she had a very difficult life. She was considered beautiful by the patriarchal standards of the day, and yet her gifts and privileges had a downside. Being beautiful made her the object of male gaze, specifically the imperial attention of a pharaoh in Egypt and King Abimelech of the Philistines. As the hip-hop artist Daniel Glover sings, the truth about the world's design is that to be beautiful is to be hunted. Sarah was hunted by powerful men. And it didn't help that her husband Abraham passed her off as his sister to save his own hide and curry political favor. What did it feel like to be pursued by kings and disowned by her husband, to be desired for one's body and betrayed by one's body at the same time. We can only imagine the internal conflict and existential crisis Sarah experienced in life. And while that does not excuse her oppression of Hagar and Ishmael, it does help explain the psychological trauma behind her behavior. And yet, isn't it wildly mysterious that this woman who was hunted and harmed throughout her life eventually became synonymous with laughter. The Russian-American songwriter Regina Spector sings, no one laughs at God in the hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and their kid's not back from that party yet. No one's laughing at God when they've lost all they have and don't know what for. And yet, the paradox is that some of the funniest people in human history came from some of the worst situations, some of the most persecuted minority groups. Because laughter is one of the ways that human beings have processed the absurdity of oppression and the frustrating paradox of God's relationship to suffering. In his novel, The Gates of the Forest, Elie Wiesel tells the story of a young Hasidic Jew named Gregor who was orphaned by the Holocaust. And while hiding in a cave in the Transylvanian Forest, Gregor is visited by a mysterious stranger named Gabriel, think Gabriel in the Bible, who has this odd and disconcerting habit of laughing. Gabriel's laughter interrupts the banality of evil and Gregor's depressed emotional state empowering him to transcend the debilitating state of fear bred by Nazi oppression. And armed with laughter like a concealed dagger, Gabriel helps Gregor overcome his paralysis and rise above the fear so that he can confront a hostile world. The mysterious messenger, Gabriel claims that he has spoken to Elijah and that Elijah has said the Messiah is not coming. He's not coming because he's already come. The Messiah is everywhere. So Gabriel teaches Gregor how to survive in this world using the only weapon he has to offset his oppressor's evil, laughter. Humor was feared by the Nazis, and jokes about them were outlawed, so laughter became a subversive activity, an invaluable tool for resistance in the face of oppression. To laugh in the face of evil is to make it shrink back, to take our minds back from the tyranny of fear which is why laughter has always been a critical defense mechanism for those living under oppression. In the case of Gregor, this Holocaust refugee, laughter literally saved his life. Viktor Frankl once said, humor more than anything else affords us the ability to rise above any situation, even if just for a few seconds. Outside of the story of Sarah and Abraham, God seems to laugh most in the liturgical songs of the people of Israel. God laughs regularly throughout the Psalms, but always at the same three things, the nations of the world, their kings and rulers, and the wicked. Yes, I know some of you are thinking, aren't those the same three things? We don't typically laugh about those things these days, unless we're watching Saturday Night Live. Most of us scream at the news in anger. There's so much greed and hatred and war and violence and tragedy in our world today, it feels too serious, too dreadful to laugh at them. And yet God is laughing at them. To be sure, we must be clear, God is not laughing at the suffering they are causing. No, God weeps with those who weep and suffers in solidarity with the oppressed. But God is laughing at the oppressors. Why? Because their power is illusory. Their oppression is absurd, and their arrogance is not only misplaced, but hysterical. Jurgen Moltmann, the great theologian, once wrote, political jokes often arise in dictatorships because laughter is the liberating act of the oppressed people. It is nothing less than the resonance of a laughing god. The arrogance of power is ridiculous because God is God and we are not. One Sunday morning in apartheid South Africa, the members of the notorious South African security police broke into St. George's church wielding weapons to keep the people under control and to record whatever Desmond Tutu was saying that Sunday morning. And Tutu stopped in the middle of his sermon and looked at the intruders as they lined the walls of the cathedral and he just laughed. He laughed at them. He said, you're very, very powerful, but I serve a higher power, a God who cannot be mocked. And he smiled as he said, you've already lost. God has already won. And so I invite you today to come and join the winning side. There was an enticing warmth of love in his smile that took everyone's breath away. And his congregation became electric. They were transformed by the bishops' words, and they leaped to their feet and began dancing. They were so raucous, they overwhelmed the police as they danced out of the cathedral to meet the military forces outside, who were not expecting a confrontation with dancing worshipers that day. (laughs) Not knowing what to do, they shrank back, creating space for the people to laugh and dance and sing together. Laughter can be liberating and life-giving, Maybe that's why people always say laughter is the best medicine. Norman Cousins was one of the first people to popularize that idea back in 1979. He miraculously somehow overcame a painful battle with a connective tissue disease by prescribing himself laughter. He wrote, I made the joyous discovery that 10 minutes of genuine belly laughter had the effect that would give me at least two hours of pain-free sleep a night. Recent scientific findings support his discovery. In 2005, researchers from the University of Maryland found that laughter increased blood flow by 22%. A 2011 study from the University of Oxford found laughter releases mood-boosting endorphins and increases an individual's pain threshold by as much as 10%. And laughter is also spiritual medicine. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, said... Humor is the thing that ushers a person's mind from a place of constricted consciousness to a place of expanded consciousness. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, when was the last time you really laughed? I mean, really laughed, full belly until you cried. Can you remember? The season of Advent is filled with a complexity of emotions. Hope and sadness... Intertwined joy tinged with sorrow. The good news is that no matter what other constellations of emotions we might be feeling this year, we can still laugh. And our laughter, it doesn't need to be perfect. It simply needs to be. Sarah's laughter was a sarcastic response to God's promise, a cynical laugh wondering where God had been all her life. But her story invites us to go ahead and laugh at God, wherever we are, If all we can do is laugh at God's promises right now, go ahead and laugh. If all we can do is laugh at God about the state of our world, then go ahead and laugh. If all we can do is laugh at God about how his followers are acting in the world, then go ahead and laugh. If all we can do is laugh at God about the nations and the kings and the rulers and the wicked, then go ahead and laugh. If all we can do is laugh about all the sickness and death and foolishness in our world, then go ahead and laugh. If all we can do is laugh about the state of our lives, then go ahead and laugh. Please understand me. I'm not counseling us to be indifferent, apathetic, or aloof from our own pain or the suffering of the world. No, I'm simply saying, go ahead and laugh. Even if it's cynical, even if it's sarcastic, even if you're laughing hopelessly, go ahead and laugh at God and wait to see what God will do. People have laughed at God before, many times, in fact. And look what happened. Pharaoh laughed at Moses, and then God sent plagues and parted waters and delivered the Hebrew people from oppression in Egypt. Goliath, you might have forgotten this, laughed at David, and then God put one right between his eyes. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes laughed at Jesus when he went in to heal a young child, and then God raised her up to new life. Who's laughing now? King Herod and his soldiers laughed at Jesus as they whipped and beat him. And then God resurrected him on the third day. The people of Jerusalem laughed at the disciples on Pentecost, thinking that they must be drunk. God blew in and set their tongues and their hearts on fire. Go ahead and laugh at God. Because, as Paul so famously said, God cannot be mocked. God can take your laughter. Sarah cynically and sarcastically laughed at God, and God came through on a hilarious promise. Gave her a child at an old age and told her rather humorously to name her child Laughter as a reminder forever of how funny God is and how incredible it is to be in covenant relationship with God. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is too wonderful for God. And if God has a sense of humor, then so should we, because laughter might just be our liberation. Reverend Susan Sparks once said, Humans are the only creatures that laugh, and since we're made in the image of the divine, that must mean God laughs too. And there's something fundamentally holy about it, she said. If you can laugh at yourself, you can forgive yourself. And if you can forgive yourself, then you can forgive others too which is where there is peace in laughter. Not only does laughter ensure that grace abounds, but if we can laugh, we might be able to survive all sorts of things. We might be able to survive a pandemic if we can laugh. We might be able to survive this apocalypse if we can laugh. We might be able to even survive Christmas this year if we can laugh. The story of God's covenant begins with the promise of new life that spawns uncontrollable laughter. Did you notice Abraham literally fell on the floor? It's a reminder to us that the new thing that God is doing in this world is hilarious. It doesn't matter if it's an old covenant or the new covenant or the birth of a child. What God is doing is so wild and crazy and surprising and insane that the only thing we can do is laugh. Advent is coming. Jesus is coming. The kingdom of God is coming and it will be kind. The kind of hilarious, topsy-turvy new thing that turns the world upside down, just as Jesus said it would in Luke 6 when he said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. I can't help but think of Sarah when I read that line in Proverbs 31, 25. Generally, I hate Proverbs 31. It's been used on mugs and other places to control women for generations But there's one line there I love. Strength and dignity are her clothing, it says. And she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. Have you ever laughed at the future? Most of us laugh about what happened in the past or the present, but we do not laugh at the future, do we? We get anxious and fearful about the future, concerned. How does this woman laugh at the future? She focuses on the gift of life and new creation embodied in the hope of a child and the miracle of God's work in the world. No matter how difficult our life has been in the past or is in the present, God is making all things new. Those who laugh at the future know that God is doing a new thing. To know that the, they know that the future will exceed our wildest imaginations. They know that the newness will be so spectacular and surprising. The only response we will have is to laugh. So like Sarah, we can name our future laughter so that we never forget how funny God is. We can laugh with God if we want to, because God's promise of new life arrives over and over. It is effervescent and ever-recurring in every advent. We are invited to receive that promise of new life again. This is what it means for us to become new creatures and a community of God's new creation, as our covenant calls us to be to receive God's promise of newness with laughter. If we can, laughter will be our medicine, our resilience, our liberation. So this Advent, try to make it a point to laugh like you'd never laughed before. Because the key to the renewal of our lives and our church and our world is to be like Abraham and Sarah and learn how to receive God's extraordinary promise of new life by laughing together at the time to come. Amen.